is The Soloist, an occasional podcast series about solo performance and solo performers. Hi, I'm Steve, Steve Greer, a theatre academic and writer, and this episode is a conversation with Ishbel McFarlane, a performer, writer and theatre maker whose work focuses on social justice, feminism, place, history and language. Ishbel's most known, uh, perhaps for a show called O is for Hulet, a solo show about the Scots language, a project which saw her working with BSL and Gaelic specialists to provide training on Scotland's minority native languages. In this conversation, we talk about those and other projects, as well as Ishbel's decision to become a theatre maker rather than pursue a PhD. It's another conversation which touches on the significance of the Arches, the Glasgow venue forced to close back in 2015. At one point you hear us talking about another space, the Bedlam. This was a student theatre that we were both involved with at different points as undergraduates at the University of Edinburgh. It starts, though, with Ishbel talking about her involvement in the original production of Eight, one of Ella Hickson's earliest plays, written when she was also a student at Edinburgh. Here's Ishbel. When I started at uni, I was like, I'm going to do more than one degree. Like, I could have already knew that the academic world pleased me. Um, So I did a research degree on an artist and poet. So this was somebody who united the, my two subjects um, and someone that I had been interested in and increasingly obsessed with since I was at school uh, and who was not at all performancy. Or, I mean, that's debatable. But, <laughs> but his stuff was very physical um, and he was a gardener called Ian Hamilton Finlay. Um, and so I decided to do a research degree and I was heading on to do a PhD and I felt as I had done as an undergrad where I would say that about half of my time was spent on my degree and about half of my time was spent on theatre so that's probably about inaccurate and that was and then you know some sleep (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so I thought I would continue that Um, and actually during we did eight at the end of my undergrad so I was doing both during my research masters we went to New York and did eight in New York and we went down to London so I was like writing my MSc dissertation in the British Library during the day and then performing in the West End at night and being like this is what my life will be like (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then decided during that process actually I do want to pursue theatre and actually the stuff that I've learned and that I've got and that I think I'm good at that I've learned from these other third and fourth years and just from doing it and trying and I have got better. I also feel like I need skills and craft. So um, I felt like a year at the conservatoire or the RSMD as it was then. Um, was it really that. clear that you were not going to go back to academia at that point when you were looking at RSMD? Did you kind of go, maybe the PhD will come along in another three or four years? No, it was, I've got to do a year and then I'm going to do the PhD. Okay. So I'm going to Glasgow for a year and then I will come back here, do the PhD. And during the PhD, I will, you know, act and make theatre. And, um, you know, because I'd done during my master's, which was a research master's. So it's sort of the equivalent of, say, a first year of a PhD. Um, And in fact, I could have sort of not cashed it in. Translated, yeah. Translated into second year of a PhD. Um, You know, I'd done sort of two months of performing eight shows a week or whatever it was that we were doing and so I was like that's fine um so what changed reality (laughs) I mean I mean part is a lot of different things when you're a student either at a university or in a conservatory um you're on a treadmill or like a conveyor belt really and you, you it's really hard for you to understand that life 
as a maker or as an artist doesn't just provide you with things constantly. So, um, you know, I felt as a, when we were doing our study at the, at the conservatoire, you know, you've constantly, there's always like, there's a show coming, you've got your Shakespeare project coming up. You've got a week of workshops with this pr- practitioner. You've got this thing. And you're like, look, I'm able to juggle all of these things. But acting or being a performer is not about juggling those things. <laughs> um, I would say it's 80% about juggling trying to get some of those things um, and so whether that's uh, applying for things trying to network also having other jobs all of that stuff so while I was doing my master's uh, in acting um, Nicola McCartney uh, who was one of the writers that I was working with and who worked had worked in universities and then now works at Edinburgh again um, I was like oh, I'm going to go do the PhD and I'll do the theatre while I'm doing that and at one point she was like, let's go for coffee. And then she was like, you won't do that. You won't do both of those things. You will do the PhD and then you'll be three or four years down the line and you won't have made any theatre in that time and you won't do theatre because then you'll be on that conveyor belt where it's like, well, now you can apply for this postdoc or, you know, come and speak at this conference and, like, that's the thing that's feeding you so you stay with that thing. Um, and I was like, hmm... <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that sort of the fact that I kind of accepted that I think I'd sort of already got there I just needed it to be articulated by somebody and so I was going to take a year out to try and establish myself in theatre before I did the PhD and then I took another year and then another year and it's now like I don't know nine years <laughs> um, and the PhD has sort of receded into the background and only comes up when I am having a shit time <laughs> and I'm like maybe I should just go back um, and do it I don't know why I want the gold stars because someone give me some gold stars and um, hopefully if I did a PhD I'd get gold stars <laughs> is that how that works so, so it was that that year was it? it was the I don't know if it still exists anymore MA classical and contemporary text yeah something like that? it does still exist but it's very different now yeah so at that time so you're being trained as a kind of you're getting your craft as an actor, mm-hmm. actor. Um, <laughs> did you have a sense of yourself going into the kind of professional theatre world as an actor? Or were you also going, no, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a director, I'm going to be a theatre maker? What was the kind of your image of yourself as a kind of, as a, as a future creative practitioner at that point, if you can even remember? Uh, yeah, well, uh, in my audition, they said, um, you know, how do you see yourself in five years? And I was like, not just an actor. Like, I don't see myself as an actor. Um, which I was like, I might as well say it because that was very central to me. And I thought, if that does preclude me from this course, then it's not the course for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to do all of those things. I did want to perform. I did want to be in The Importance of Being Earnest, but I wanted to direct, particularly at that time, and I wanted to write and I wanted to run a venue or I wanted to run a festival, you know, like all the stuff that I'd done. I always wanted to do all of it. And any time I was doing one thing, I was missing another thing. Um, so that was, I was clear on that right from the beginning. And actually the course, I think particularly at that time, but still now, like does um, does provide that, some of that kind of preparation. So it wasn't like my, um, I know people that went to say RADA. Mm-hmm. Um, 
where they, you know, they smash you down with a toffee hammer um, and then they melt you and then they, you hopefully come back together. <laughs> um, and But it's, it's as an actor, you know, and um, with the MACCT, we had part of our mark was we proposed projects to do at a festival of work by postgrads and undergrads and we did our own shows and we wrote up um essays on the process of doing that and you know all of that stuff so I did a show during that we're also working with uh, writers in development of new texts as well as going to the globe and working on Shakespeare scenes. So you're being kind of encouraged not to see yourself purely just as the actor who is waiting for the phone to ring. Exactly. I'm like a bit squicked by the by the term, but I guess it's a sense of like entrepreneurialism. It's not yeah. quite the right term for it, but just sense of that you are, you've got maybe quite a bit of agency. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You're proactive. But that you're, that you're not necessarily, like I didn't, I know people who now write because it's a way to perform. You know, um, and I didn't see myself as that at the time. I mean, it was it, I wanted to write as well. You know, <laughs> I wanted to be making things as well. Um, so it wasn't just a way to make sure that I was still acting. And I think that was the that was the ideal. Um, the course has now moved to, because I think people who want to do the course actually want more of the straight acting in inverted commas. Um, you know, we didn't have a showcase or anything like that, yeah. um, which they do now. So that's yeah. the sort of shift. So how quickly after this did you come to make I Was For Hula, which is the kind of show maybe you're you're most well known for? Mm, ages. <laughs> um, so you graduated, what, from that programme in... 2010. And then um, Hula was 2015, 2014? Yeah, so 2014 was when I first did the scratch, and then I got the... Uh, platform 18 award from the arches so it was the 2014 platform 18 award which meant that i performed in 2015 okay behavior we'll come to maybe come to behavior in a second so so talk about the the scratch how did you come to do this kind of scratch opportunities this was at the arches this kind of great mm. great loved lost venue which keeps yeah. coming up in these kind of conversations i have and i talked for a long time about to kieran kieran hurley about the arches yeah trying not to be again not, st- not too nostalgic but also still having like a shared history attached to that place totally and i think i think that will be the case for while it's still like i i am i still imagine pieces that i'm you know if i'm having an idea and i still realize after a while that i'm imagining them in the arches and i felt not in the arches club you know um but I already, before I had ever had anything on at the Arches, I was imagining things at the Arches, you know, because that, I would say the Arches made me the artist that I am, even before I made any work at the Arches. What can you remember seeing at the Arches? So before you, for the scratch, before you ever put anything on there, can you remember any <laughs> any things that you saw? That's always a really difficult question. Yeah. No, uh, the first things I saw there were, well, I saw some stuff when I was at Edinburgh that friends did at Scratch, and I had no idea what a Scratch was or what were we seeing these sort of little things and, um, but like the venue, you know, the sort of it was so not Edinburgh, <laughs> <laughs> even though we had you know the underbelly and or whatever it was, the caves, so it was called the rest of the year, um, that wasn't what happened there, <laughs> um, and. Yeah, and I remember there being... 
Actually, I think I saw a show that Kieran was in, maybe when he was a student. So a friend of mine at Edinburgh's friend was doing theatre studies here at Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And it was like a piece, and it was just stuff that I had never seen before, like basic performance art. I, I had seen, I've been to the Fringe since I was in utero and mum and I had gone, but we'd all, and we'd seen, you know, Shakespeare for breakfast every year and, you know, stuff that was much more experimental than somebody who grew up in Kinross would have expectation to see that wasn't, you know, at the Panto or something at Perth Theatre mm-hmm. or our um, local Amdram or whatever. But this was a different order. Of... But this was a totally different thing. Like, for a start, it was the first time I ever saw, like, a microphone used on stage along with, like, um, acoustic voice and being like, wow. <laughs> but this is like it's sometimes those like simple things like about like oh, which shifts your kind of your sense of what the vocabulary of theatre might be totally and it's not it's not always about like I didn't realise I was allowed to do that mm. it's just the idea of it yeah totally and at the time I was like how did they get their ideas <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but you've I mean it's interesting you say like you didn't feel like you were initially or maybe ever like part of the Archers Club was it slightly to do with that kind of the close association of the arches with a sort of live art experimental practice? Yeah, I wanted to use narrative. And so we there was a sort of, there's a, you know, there's a division in Scottish theatre, I think, which partly, maybe this is because I came, I sort of came into Scottish theatre really through the conservatoire. And so there's the classical and contemporary text and there's the undergrad actors and there's contemporary performance practice. Um, and so you feel like there are these strands that then you kind of place onto the real world. So there's this kind of literary text-based tradition, broadly yeah. speaking, and then this non-literary... Like aggressively non-literary, aggressively, from what we saw, aggressively non-narrative. And, and really highly embodied, often explicit, the explicit bodies. Yeah, exactly. Um and so I f- partly felt that I wasn't in the Arches Club because I wanted stories. I didn't necessarily want to write a kitchen sink drama. I still wanted things that were, you know, not... that didn't. I felt like I didn't have a place on the stage at the Tron at the time and I didn't have a place on the stage at the Arches. Um, that was a slight misunderstanding, I think, of what the Arches could be, um, but that was definitely the image that I had. I remember seeing a scratch once where somebody drank like six pints of water on stage and then said, nothing bad is going to happen here and then pissed all over the stage. Um, and we had to like lift our feet and our bags because we're sitting in the front <laughs> row floods as it floods, as it creeps down the rake towards us um, and being like, well, I'm not going to do that. And I think that's another confidence thing. And I think when there was this lot of discussion after the arches uh, fell down the stairs or was pushed um, about like, how do we create that feeling again? And I felt that something that wasn't fully understood was for everybody in the club. It's so, it feels like such an inclusive place where you can do anything. And for everybody outside the club, it feels like a closed door. So this is weird. It's like the the dynamics of our relationship to the bedlam of like yeah, being yeah. on slightly the other side of the door. Totally, absolutely. And I was kind of aware of it when I was in bedlam, but it is you know privilege is invisible to itself, and also it wasn't in my interest to deal with it at the time. Um, 
because the people who are in positions of power, it's not in their interest to um, reduce their power so that they can share it. Um, but that doesn't mean that people are malicious. You yeah. know, none of these people who were making amazing work at the arches were like, ha I've got in now, I will jam the door with my shoe. Um, it's just the nature of human beings. And um, how do you make things feel like, how do you make people feel at home? Walk in the door as a guest and then leave as a host. And that's a problem that there is to do with race and class and gender and you know, all sorts of different things um, that we haven't fixed. And it can be true even of a nice middle-class girl from the east coast of Scotland. Just to kind of rewind back, there's, you kind of said that you had this sense of that maybe this impression of the arches was a slight misapprehension of what the arches could be. Yeah. So how did you come into the the scratch opportunity? So yeah, this initial yeah. version of Hula, where did that come from? Um, so I did a... a short piece of theatre as part of a night of short pieces or performance of short pieces um, with stellar quines and um, as part of that I wanted to use Scots language and I was working with a friend who's Australian and so that was her interest in that um, and not like what boring you know made me feel empowered Um, the process of writing it was incredibly difficult and my own personal history with it all came to the fore and in doing that I thought right but it's time for me to do this, partly because I think it's interesting artistically and partly because I need to do this for Ishmael McFarlane, the human being. Um, so I applied to Arches Live to do the show as a show at Arches Live, which I think meant would have meant at the time that, you know, you get like an hour slot and like 200 quid if that, I don't know, like yeah. a slot. So you, you were the kind of the commitment of the Arches was you were giving sort of um, rehearsal space, sort of baseline technical support, yeah. and this kind of micro budget. Micro to budget, make the exactly, work. yeah. And that was for, that's in the autumn, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So Archers Live was sort of, I think, Glasgow or like Scottish artists trying things out. So yeah, it was a real emphasis on kind of emergent work. Very emergent. Sometimes people who are currently studying, um, maybe you would get someone like um, Adrian Howells or someone doing a piece at Archers Live. Um, and then behaviour was the more kind of international, bigger stage. Which was there in the spring. Which is in the spring, exactly. Um, so I applied for Arches Live, was rejected. And um, uh, was so this felt like a long time. So this was four years since I'd left drama school. Um, I had It wasn't the first thing I'd applied for. I'd, in the six months after I left drama school, I was rejected or heard nothing back from 100 different things. Um and uh, stopped counting after that. <laughs> um, I think it was even the three months. It was like before Christmas. Um, and so I'd apply and it just felt like, yeah. But they said they didn't come back for what, you know, I got not just a no or not just a nothing. Um, I got, okay, well, we don't, we like your idea in terms of um, we're interested in Scots language and some of the things that you had to say about Scots language, minority language, minority culture. But we don't really like your form um, that I propose. They were like, do a scratch, try something out, maybe try a different form, um, and you've got 20 minutes. So the scratch normally would be like a sort of 10 minute, you know, through the year. But for Arches Live, they had, I think, I think probably selected from the people who they couldn't give a whole slot to. And so it was just three performances of like 20 minutes. So you had a bit longer um, 
And so I obviously did half an hour <laughs> because I always do too much working talking. Um, and so I made the piece that I had proposed or like I worked on a piece as I had proposed it because I resisted what they suggested. They suggested more of a lecture format, mm-hmm. which it did have, but slightly different. Um, and that was how I came to do that scratch. Um, and I had sort of half an hour material, which had been, which was created in, I think, maybe two or three days, but had been kind of distilled over maybe a decade of like thinking about Scots, thinking about what it meant for the culture, what it meant for me, my own experience, like a specific link to a recording of my mum when she was young. Like you, you know, come across that recording when you'd been a... When I was an undergrad. Yeah. yeah, so when I was 19. So I think when I did the first scratch, I was like 28. So it was like, a, you know, nearly a decade later. And that show is suddenly having to do a huge amount of like work artistically and personally. There's like 20 minutes. No wonder you couldn't fit it into 20 minutes. <laughs> totally, yeah. Completely. And when I was working with Vanessa again, my friend, um, so she was sort of dramaturging for me and she said, come to me with, you know, I was like, I don't know where to start. And I just talked to her about blah, like all of this stuff and that I wanted it to be multiple. You know, I wanted not to show like a monolithic idea of what Scots is or should be or where it's been or where it's going. Um, And she was like, come to me with maybe four or five bits of text and we'll start with those and we'll see how we can work with them. And I came with like maybe 20 or 30 pieces of text. um, And then that is what we used. But when you were making that show, I mean, maybe it's like the question has an immediate answer already, is that there was no question of there being anyone other than you who would perform this. This was so intimate to you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the... Yeah, no, not at all. And and sometimes people have wanted the script of it, and I have um, given the script to people. And um, there's a recording that we made um, as part of doing it for behaviour when I got the Platform Eighteen Award. Um, but like, it just it just doesn't. I can't. You no, know, I couldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't get. I want anyone else to do it. When I made it, one of the things that Jill Smith, who's a producer at the Arches, and then who set up Feral Arts, who produce it now, she was like, you know, what what do you want to happen with this show? And I was like, I want to do it for trainee teachers. I want to train them in minority you know, languages, in Scots language at that time. Um, and so it was always in my mind. And then I was approached by the Scots Language Centre um, to use Hulet maybe as a centrepiece for training on Scots language. But in doing the show, had become educated uh, more broadly in minority languages, which I was always interested in, um, and minoritised languages, and had learned more not only about Gaelic, um, but also about British Sign Language. And so at that stage, which would be kind of, you know, a year into the show, after I did it at the Fringe, um, I was like, I will do this, um, but I'll only do it if it's all three of Scotland's native, what does that mean, but native minority languages. Um, and that's and, what came, I think I've heard you saying, of, of people coming up to you after the show, not only Scots speakers, but other people identifying that the similar kind of dynamics, the same kind of experiences of of being a minority or minoritised language speaker. Yeah, totally. And whether that was BSL or Gaelic or being a Punjabi, you know, speaking Punjabi at home and not wanting to speak it because you wasn't what your friend spoke at school or you weren't, you were made fun of, if you, you know, like, and then not being able to speak to your grandparents and, you know, like all of that, all of that stuff. Um, or whether it's about, 
language variety and speaking a Boston accent, even when you're at university in Boston and you don't, and you switch over and then you switch back. And um, like that seemed to apply. And it so always felt one challenge in promoting the show and in, for me and kind of talking about it sometimes is it seems so specific but it is so not specific. <laughs> there is basically nobody who watches the show who isn't like, that's what happened to me. As well as Hulet, last year I was working with an, a charity called PASS who work with sort of empowering communities in decision-making processes in their community, particularly about the built environment. So I was the project artist on that. And, um, you know, I was brought in as a project artist to do a show that I had made called Plan. And... I constantly, they wanted an artist and, um, but it is difficult for them to negotiate what it meant to have an artist and what it meant to have an artist making art. Um, and I ended up needing, having to be an employee in this organization and, you know, and the, the, the description of what I was doing constantly shifted because their understanding of what any person who worked with this organization was, was so not working with an artist and um, and they weren't you know it was just diff it was just really difficult for them to do and um, so like that's a way to get paid for what you're doing but you're it's so different <laughs> um, and and are you an artist then you know if you're on the payroll and you're in the secret santa and you have to come into the office um what does that mean when you do the show, but there's going to be this other thing on, you know, I tried with Pla like I do with Hula, I tried very clearly, constantly every meeting. I was like, it's a show. That's a performance. There won't be anyone else in the space while we're doing it. I'm in character. Like all of these things I was trying to, and at the first, and I'd fought so hard for them. And the first performance during the show, I said to my assistant, my friend, um, I was like, we do this as a workshop next time. This is not, like it's not it's not a performance. It just can't be, you know. You just and so from that point on, it was no longer a show. It was going to be something that was completely different. And I just had to be like, goodbye, show idea. And this is this, you know, because you have to respond to context. Yeah, I think I can't remember if I've read or maybe I've just talked to you about it. Of you sort of saying you made a bit of a conscious decision to retire plan. Mm. Talk to me about that, because that's a scary thing. It's a project which has still got some life in it. Yeah. And there's maybe there's potential for you to tour it and get, you know, to be commissioned again to perform it. Yeah. To you then kind of go... Bye. No, yeah, <laughs> bye for now, or bye full stop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have retired it, but the set's still sitting in my study. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why did you... Why, what was the... Did it just run its course? Yeah, so I did it with Pass, and I also did it... Um, was that the International Book with Festival? With the International Book Festival as well. And that was more straight show. But again, it was sort of as part of workshop creation process for young people and for older people. So we were working with children at school and people were um, attending various um, activities for older people. And that had originally come out of a, was it, an artist lab thing at National Theatre Scotland? Exactly, yes. So I, um, off the back of Hulet, they were like, we want to support you. We want to give you an artist lab. What do you want to do? And I was like, I want to make a show about built environment, concrete and utopias. And they were like, cool. Well, I'll get back to us on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, 
in the preparation for that, I realised I wanted the show to be a gate, have a game mechanic. So the show was actively participatory and different every time. And um, I was in character, but my role was facilitator. So again, another piece, Hulit suffered sometimes from people not being able to tell if it was a lecture and sort of reading it as a lecture. Um, and so I constantly had to be like, no, it's different. Like, we have to have this. We have to have this. Um, I need to have time before and after, for example. Something that um, my partner, Tommy, my partner points out a lot is that I'm very good at making things not count. So I'll say to him, I haven't made anything. That I haven't performed since, you know, 2015. And he'll be like, well, wait, what? <laughs> and I'll be like, no, 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 but that's because I'm already doing that. Or that's because, oh, that wasn't, you know, that was just a storytelling night. That wasn't like its own thing. Or I'm, I mean, in this, in someone else's show, or I haven't collaborated. Um, and I think that there is something that is part of the artist process that is about dealing with doing something over and over. Um, and do you get fed by that? Um, and actually in performance, I'm, I always love it, you know, but you have to put a lot before that. And during that process, are you like, ah, or are you like, yay? Um, and, you know, even when I'm writing something, if I have another idea, I'm like, yay, that idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, you, so I, sometimes you have to work with that and sometimes you have to work against it. Um, and it felt because plan, I, you know, did the lab at the very end of 2015 started to feel to me like I'd made these two pieces of art in 2015 and I was just rattling, rattling along with them. Um, and I needed to scare myself into doing something else. To find out more about Ishbel and her projects, you can visit her website at ishbelmcfarlane.wordpress.com. For more episodes of The Soloist and to find out what else I get up to, you can visit my site, stevegreer.org. Thanks for listening.